from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Harris dropping back now, flushed out, rolls right, looking to throw, got a receiver down near the 11-yard line, and it's going to be caught by Jordan Crankwright, and he's going to go in and score! Jordan Crankwright! Oh my! What a great run after the catch, and the Gators score on a 41-yard pass play! Gators 10 for 17 today on third down, but here's third down and eight. Twin receivers to the right, Powell's in the slot right. There's the running play to Kelvin Taylor, looking for running room. He's got a hole. He's got a first down inside the 40-yard line. Still on his feet to the 30, the 25, the 20, 15, 10, 5, and down at the one-yard line. Oh, my! That could be it. A beautiful run. It's 53 rides right up the gut for Kelvin Taylor. First and goal, one-yard line. Now here's Taylor getting the ball on a handoff. He's in! Touchdown, Taylor made! Oh, my! Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. The sweep of the East was completed with Florida's 24-14 victory over South Carolina on Saturday in Columbia, and it also moved the Gators up to 8th in the latest college football playoff rankings. Now at 9-1 and and on the verge of a coveted 10-win season, the Orange and Blue welcome FAU to the Swamp this weekend while also saluting those who serve. Today we'll chat with safety Keanu Neal about living up to the sky-high expectations for the Florida defense. Talk to linebackers coach Randy Shannon about areas of improvement for his unit heading down the stretch. And learn about the numerous connections between Florida and FAU from Gator's own senior writer Scott Carter. Also, with basketball season officially underway, we recap the early returns from the Mike White era with Gator's own senior writer Chris Harry. But first, we sat down with the voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert, to talk about the latest accomplishment for Florida football, and he noted that this particular sweep of the East is the first of its kind. You know, Adam, I think the neat thing about uh, sweeping the East, as the Gators were able to do by winning at South Carolina last week, is the fact that it was the first time ever that Florida had gone 6-0 and in sweeping the East, because for years they didn't play but five division games, and now six with the addition of Missouri coming into this side in the Eastern Division. So 6-0 and for the first time, but it was the 11th time that the Gators had swept the East since they went into the divisions in 1992. In 92, they did not, because they, they lost to Tennessee and, and still won the Eastern Division, but not with a sweep. In 93, it began a great run. Actually, going back to the end of 1992, the Gators won their last three games against Eastern Division teams, and then they swept the Eastern Division in 93, 94, 95, 96, and then lost after two wins. That's 25 consecutive victories against the Eastern Division. Now, obviously, that was the greatest period in Gator football history because it was an SEC title in 93, 94, 95, 96. Just tremendous. But in that 1993 season, uh, the Gators, as I mentioned, that was the first time they had swept, and they went 5-0. and But of their wins in that 93 season, they had wins by 4, 7, and 7 points. So there were some tight ones, but they still swept it through. And as I mentioned, this is the 11th time. But of the 10 that have occurred, the Gators are 7-2 and two going on in the SEC championship game. We say, that only adds up to 9, 7-2, and two, and they've done it 10 times. Oddly enough, in the 2002 season when Ron Zook was here, the Gators swept the Eastern Division, went 5-0 and against the East, 
did not represent the East in the SEC championship game. Florida finished at 6-2, and two, losing twice over in the Western Division. Georgia, who Florida beat, the only loss Georgia had that year was 7-1. and one. They played in the SEC championship game. So here was a sweep of the East, and the Gators weren't even representing the Eastern Division. Uh, and then again, uh, in 06 and 08, when they won the national championship, they, they swept at 5-0 and oh and 5-0 and oh both of those times. So again, the first time the Gators ever swept the East by winning six times, where all the previous sweeps had been at 5-0. and oh. One of the cool things about being in a place for as long as you've been at Florida is you get to see not only some great players, but then the next generation from those families. And certainly we're seeing that now with Kelvin Taylor showing more and more flashes of what Fred did back in the day. Yeah, really blessed to, to be Adam in this job for 27 years and to see some of those legacy players. You know, when Fred Taylor came on, he had a great freshman year. I think he rushed for about 850 yards or so. And his middle two seasons uh, wasn't nearly as effective. In, in 97, Steve Spurrier leaned on him more and more. And I remember, I think in those last three games in 97, he, he collected about 600 yards rushing. He was really huge in the last three games that he played. And so in 1997, uh, Fred Taylor picked up 1,292 rushing yards. Now, interestingly enough, fast forward to today, and Kelvin Taylor has 736, so he needs 264 more yards the rest of the year to rush for 1,000, and that would be just the 11th Gator in history to have a 1,000-yard rusher. There hasn't really been that many. Matter of fact, uh, we haven't had one since 2012 when Mike Gillisley ran for 11.52, and Gillisley did that after Seatric Faison had last done it in 2004, so it had been a number of years. So point being that if Kelvin Taylor can get to 1,000, he'd be just the second Gator to rush for 1,000 since 2004, and as I mentioned, he's about uh, 500-plus yards away from what his dad had. His dad, again, rushed for 1292. So I don't know if he can get that or not, but uh, he, he's got a real legitimate chance to rush for 1,000. The single season leader I also had a chance to see, and that was Emmett Smith. Uh, in his junior year, which turned out to be his final season, it was my first season in the broadcast booth, and uh, we, we talked about this on one of the previous podcasts, but in the homecoming game against New Mexico, Emmett Smith ran for 316 yards in the game, and that was en route to 1,599 yards. He was a yard short of getting 1,600 yards rushing in that 1989 season. That stands as the single season best for any Gator running back. A lot of people are already talking about the FSU game, but there's another in-state opponent before that. It's FAU this weekend, and while there's not a huge history between these teams, Florida has had some really nice performances against the Owls in the past. Yeah, they, they have, and, uh, you know, obviously the big in-state games, as you mentioned, FSU and Miami over the years, but we've sprinkled in uh, USF and UCF and FAU over the years, and obviously in 2011, it was Will Muschamp's very first game against FAU, and the Gators won it 41-3, to and the thing I remember about that game was Chris Rainey, because Rainey he scored three different ways. He had a rushing touchdown, a receiving touchdown, and also picked up a block punt and ran that in for a score. So Rainey getting in the end zone three different ways was the highlight of the last time FAU was here. And in 2007, under Urban Meyer, uh, we, we beat them really badly. It was 59-20. to 20. And in that game, when Tebow scored a, a rushing touchdown, that was the year's Heisman Trophy winning year for Tim Tebow, 2007. But he became the first NCAA player to rush for 20 touchdowns and throw for 20 touchdown passes in the year. And he did that, he accomplished that feat as a part of that victory in 2007. In 2006, uh, we beat UCF 42 to nothing in the first game of the year. And what was noteworthy about that was, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, going to the left to right across your radio dial, <laughs> going to the south end zone, we threw a little pass on a crossing route over the middle to a youngster named Percy Harvin. 
And I watched Harvin make this move and that move and that move. And it was like trying to catch a guy in a phone booth. And all of a sudden, boom, down the left sideline into the end zone, 58 yards. And it was on that play for Percy Harvin that I first muttered the words, oh, mercy, Percy. And I used it a lot during that time. But as I saw that run, I, I didn't really think of, oh, my, at that time. But I thought of, oh, mercy, Percy. I mean, it was unbelievable in that particular run. We saw a lot of great runs for Percy Harvin catching runs. And that came against an in-state team in UCF in 2006. So while those games haven't really been large in, in number, they have had some kind of highlight moments. And so as we come to the Swamp on Saturday, we'll look maybe for a player to have a big standout game of some sort. There have been a lot of different ways that Gators have made marks for themselves against these games, which, you know, a lot of people think they're kind of nondescript. Uh, a noon start, week before Thanksgiving, the week before FSU, SEC championship game further on down the horizon. But it's an opportunity to go out there for somebody to make a big play and uh, go down in the annals of Gator history. Florida's secondary is known for many things, but one of their unique attributes is their size. While defensive backs can often be small in stature, don't tell that to Keanu Neal, whose combination of size and speed has NFL scouts drooling. We began our conversation with the junior by asking him what sweeping the East means to the team. means everything you know it shows that uh, we're, we're a really close-knit team we really care about each other and we're, we're doing the right things I guess that ties into this next question but when you look at where you are this year compared to this point last year what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen that have led to the turnaround uh, I'd say the the chemistry like I said we're a close-knit team we're closer than we were last year even though we were close last year you know we bought into what coach Mack wanted we bought into the the details the, the little things that he preaches and um you know, it paid off. As you've continued to win throughout this season, we've heard Coach Max say a lot of different things to the media in terms of how he feels about you guys. What's the message been like from him? Has it evolved? Uh, no, it's pretty much the same thing. Like, he's uh, constantly preaching about the little things, just focusing on the small things and allowing the bigger things to take care of itself and just focusing on us, focusing on Florida. Whoever we play throughout the week, it doesn't matter. You know, we're just focused on us. Last year at this time, there was a coaching change going on, a lot of uncertainty in a season that didn't really have a goal this year you guys are playing for possibly everything so knowing that how does that affect the way this team is preparing and playing each week doesn't change anything you know each week is the biggest game of the year because it's the next game and that's that's what he preaches and that's what we believe in you know this next game is going to be the biggest game of the season even if it's not the, the bcs championship you know so just focusing on the next and treating each game like it's it's our last We've talked to a lot of members of the secondary this year about the whole DBU stuff in the summer and the impact that's had. From your standpoint, has that increased the pressure on you guys to perform now that everybody is looking at you and expecting such great things? A little bit, but I mean, it is what it is. You go out there and play and do your best and just embrace each other and just play for each other. And, you know, we're doing that, not really thinking too much about the DBU stuff. That doesn't matter. It's just, it's us, you know, playing with each other and playing within ourselves. The whiteboard made its national TV debut this past weekend, and I think a lot of people are wondering where did that come from? What's the story behind that? What can you tell us about the, the whiteboard and the magic marker? That's Coach Collins, man. He, um, you know, whenever we get a turnover, whenever we get an interception, a forced fumble, anything like that, we go up and write our name on the board. That's just really what it is. You know, just kind of like showing who's who's making plays. We see things like that. We see money down, all these gimmicky type things to fans. But what do they mean to the players, and how have they affected the way that you guys play? It's kind of like a um, a symbol to let us know that you know it's time to get off the field. 
you know, whenever you see that money sign, it's like, okay, it's third down. We need to lock in. We need to, um, you know, make sure they don't get a first. So it's kind of it kind of helps us know where we are in the game. You've primarily been a safety since you've been here, but what other positions have you played throughout your football career, and what would you say is your favorite? Shoot, I play running back, receiver, I play DN, I play linebacker, and obviously safety. You know, I pretty much played almost every position uh, from Pop Warner all the way up to now. But I, I'd say safety is my favorite position. You know, I like you know seeing everything. We're sitting in the south end zone right now and looking out of the swamp. When you look at this place, you think about some of the great memories here. What stands out as maybe a favorite moment? Just embracing everybody, just spending time with, with my boys and just having a great time with them. You know, just looking at the swamp, it's it's beautiful, man. Just picturing 90,000, you know, chanting orange, blue, you know, all that. It fuels you, and it's exciting, and it's, it's surreal. You mentioned your relationship with the guys and how important that is. Who's a teammate who you've learned the most from during your time here? He actually graduated already, but uh, Gideon Ajabe, I definitely learned a lot from him. Uh, as far as, you know, personally, spiritually, on the field, just everything. He's a great guy, and I've definitely learned a lot from him. As you've transitioned to becoming an upperclassman, who are some younger guys who you feel like you've had the biggest impact on? What areas have you helped the most? For instance, uh, Casey Johnson. He was a safety here, and they moved him to linebacker. I've talked to him and helped him through his transition because, you know, it's, it's hard coming from high school, playing a position and then coming up here and then playing a different position, you know. So I, I helped him through that process, but, um, you know, things like that. What player at the next level do you most look up to and have you modeled your game after? I say Cam Chancellor. I've watched him a lot. A lot of guys say I play like him. And, you know, watching him, I think I do. A hitter who can also make plays on the ball. In what areas do you think you've improved the most this season? My coverage skills. That was my biggest thing. That was the biggest question for me is, uh, you know, can he cover? And I can. And I just wanted to show that this year. I really wanted to work on that uh, in the off season, and I did. And, you know, there's a few times this year that I've shown that, and I'm going to continue to do that. Teammates talk about you off the field, say you're just the nicest guy. You never know what a monster you can be on the field, and you're such a hard hitter. So what is that switch like? How do you explain that change in mentality from when you're on the sidelines to when you get in between the lines? I don't even know how to explain it. It just happens. You know, it's just just something something clicks and and it's game time as a safety you obviously have a job to prevent bad things from happening in your personal life what's the most dangerous thing that you've ever done before keep in mind nick washington wrestled an alligator that's the high bar here so you don't have to clear it but what do you got for us <laughs> i got chased by a dog once and uh i tried to like keep him from biting me i mean i guess that's that's kind of dangerous it was a big dog so I don't know. What, what kind of dog was it it's like a rottweiler that counts yeah, that's, 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 that's good. Yeah. Okay. That sounds dangerous enough. <laughs> As you continue through the end of this season, what are some of the things that you're focusing on the most? Continue to do what we do, just focusing on the next game and attacking each week like it's our last. When the Gators and Owls meet on Saturday, there will be a ton of players in the field hailing from South Florida. Given that, it seems appropriate that South Florida native Jeff Cardozo caught up with linebackers coach Randy Shannon to talk about this week's matchup. As a longtime player and coach for Miami, Shannon has significant ties to South Florida, but says that first and foremost this weekend is about self-improvement. 
it's an opportunity for us to get better. Another opponent that we have to play, a lot of guys from South Florida, is 51 players on this both football team that have some type of relationship with each other, which is unbelievable. And it's going to be an exciting day for both teams. Since it is your third consecutive noon start, are you guys acclimated now with that time? Well, what do you do to prepare for the early start? Well, the one biggest thing that we've done is that anytime we have a 12 noon start, we have an 8 o'clock breakfast, four hours before game time to get guys used to getting up out of bed, coming to breakfast, moving around, but also getting their stomachs adjusted to making sure they have food in their system. A lot of guys used to waking up at 9 o'clock because of class and things like that may eat late, but this has been tremendous for us. The guys have responded for us. We've been playing pretty well by doing this. You guys have had a, a lot of success, obviously, but I think the, the fascinating part in talking to the guys week in and week out is, is they don't talk about themselves. They talk about just an entire team process. What's that been like and just how fun is it to teach just a team atmosphere like that? It's been unbelievable. It's funny because, you know, we would talk about it and when you hear the players talk about it and the defensive linemen talking to the linebackers or the linebackers talking to the D-line or the secondary, I mean, it's unbelievable just to see the bond and how those guys understand if we do up front of D-line, that means the linebackers are going to be free. If the linebackers, you're getting blocked, the D-line is free. Secondary, we're going to put pressure on the quarterback. You guys get interceptions. So it works all the hand-to-hand, and they understand it. So the individualism goes out of the game because they understand everybody's going to be a part of something that's special. And we know that football's in three phases, offense, defense, special teams. But the offense has actually been a, a help to you guys, too, because as you look at last week against South Carolina, just the time of possession allowing you guys to rest and recover. That's one of the biggest things I think that people don't realize is that our offense has done a tremendous job of time of possession. And if we're going in the game and we've been playing 50 snaps a game, that means we're going to be fresh. That means 25 plays at half when we can run around, create turnovers, win the field position. I think that's the biggest thing that we see on this football team is that our defense knows what the offense is going to do. They're going to control the football. We're going to get on the football field, trying to get a short field and just create turnovers and havoc. What is Florida Atlantic going to try to do to the team? You talked about South Florida and, and the athletes down there, so they've got to have some good skill guys. Have tremendous skill guys. They'll try to come out and do what they do best, run the football, and then also try to create some kind of pass play, some type of trickery to get a cheap one. I think they'll go in the game just knowing what they do. And Coach Partridge, you know, he's a good friend of mine. He's going to give you five plays on offense that he can find a way to steal a play. And that's what he wants, five plays in this game that he can steal, that can create some type of big play to give him points. So what do you guys have to then do defensively to stop that? Is it more about what you have to do for yourselves as opposed to defending what they're trying to do? The biggest thing that we have and, and big plays happen is the communication factor. And if our guys communicate and keep their eyes, what we all say, eyes on your luggage, that means if you go in the airport and you leave your eyes, somebody's going to take your luggage. Same thing. you got a man, you got a responsibility. Keep your eyes on your luggage and great things happen. You know you're going to Atlanta to play for a championship. So what's the mood been like? Has it still been a great week of practice? These guys fired up? I'll tell you what. Earlier this week is been unbelievable. I mean, we came out Monday. There's been a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of quick, short things, but it was unbelievable. Came back out Tuesday. It was tremendous. Wednesday has been tremendous. So I think we've taken another step on understanding the process of what we're trying to get done. The neatest things that I remember back in my playing days, Coach always said that, you know, hey, I don't care if you make it to the, the next level. I just care about how you turn out as a person and, and how you turn out as a father. And it seems like you know, talking to the, the players on this team, you're concerned for those guys and just the relationships you're building. That's got to be pretty special. It's special because you know what you want to build relationships that you can have for long term, not a short term period. And everywhere I've been, I've still got relationships with guys back when I was at TCU, guys I've coached at the University of Miami, guys back at Arkansas. 
long-term relationships and guys know that you care and you, you're trying to get them to be young men and not just being a product. And I always tell those guys, don't be a product, be a person. And that's the biggest thing that I think the guys understand what we're trying to do here and myself. Over the years, you, you've been in a lot of relationships with guys on the other sideline that you know and, and care about and are friends with. How do you throw that away just to, to play a football game? Because everybody knows game day. <laughs> and that's the biggest thing. If once it's game day, that side of the football field is an enemy of mine. After the game day, we'll shake hands and we'll be tremendous friends. We already know the historical significance of Florida's sweep of the East thanks to Mick earlier in the show, but don't set the records in stone just yet. Scott Carter brought up another important milestone to add to the McIlwain ledger. To go 7-1 in the SEC in McIlwain's first season, a little history, that's the most SEC wins any coach in Florida history has ever had in his first season. Steve Spurrier had six in 1990. Ron Zook had six in 2002. So Jim McIlwain made a little bit of history, and you know, they can do that again this Saturday against FAU. No Florida coach has ever won 10 games in his first season. Next up is FAU. They're having a difficult season on paper. are not going to scare a lot of people, but as Jim McIlwain has noted, they've got a lot of guys from the state of Florida who are going to be really amped up to play the Gators. Yeah, they recruit well in South Florida, and that means they have a lot of speed at them, and that's something that has jumped out on film to the Gators. And a lot of these guys know each other, so there's always that pride factor. South Florida football is very competitive uh, in the high school ranks, so those guys carry that to college. There are some connections. I mean, this is the third time the programs have met. FAU, remember, they were started under Howard Schnellenberger, the, the famous University of Miami coach. He's been replaced by Charlie Partridge, who was on Brett Belima's staff at Wisconsin and Arkansas, worked for a year with Gators associate head coach and linebackers coach Randy Shannon out of Arkansas. So there are some crossovers besides the players. There's also that in the coaches. But it, it's a program that is having a rough year. And to give you an idea of the way FAU season's going at them, I think last week kind of sums this up. They were driving against the Middle Tennessee at home, trailing 24-17, make a big play on a flea flicker. What looked like was going to be a 70-yard uh, touchdown pass to potentially tie the game. Well, the uh, receiver right as he was going into the end zone he kind of looked back and taunted the middle Tennessee player it was called taunting so it was not a dead ball penalty he had not scored yet so they marked it from where the infraction happened they don't score on the drive they end up losing 24-17 so that kind of sums it up right there how the Owls have been hooting this year you know I think interesting enough our guys understand the type of talent they have there's 53 people intertwined in this game from both sides that went to the same schools. There's a ton to prove for guys, and they know how hard these guys will play. Quarterback play continues to be a big storyline for the Gators. A lot of people watching Treon Harris's performance very, very closely. He had a career-high in completions against South Carolina. Now a chance to test him a little bit further before you get into these critical games. Yeah, Adam, uh, Treon Harris, uh, 19 out of 33 for uh, 256 yards in the win at South Carolina. He made some good throws. Obviously had a couple interceptions that he'd like to have back, certainly the one in the red zone. Jim McElwain uh, wants to see uh, a different decision there. But, you know, Treon is continued to kind of just evolve each week. He was tested a little bit more in the passing game at South Carolina, as you mentioned, with those career highs and attempts and completions. And the 256 yards, he's only done better than that once. That was the 271 he had at LSU. So uh, they got the passing game going a little bit better. 
And at quarterback on the other sideline, Adam, uh, a name that uh, Florida fans will be familiar with, Jason Driscoll, a redshirt freshman for the Owls, obviously the younger brother of former Gators quarterback Jeff Driscoll. Jason Driscoll is not quite as big as his brother. He's about 6'2", 210, but he has played uh, some this season, split in time with Jacquez Johnson at quarterback. So he started a couple of games early in the season, so we don't really know exactly if we'll see him on Saturday against the Gators, but he does have experience, played in eight games this year, and it's certainly a guy that if he does take the field, he's been here a few times uh, watching Jeff play. Injuries have been an issue for Florida here in the latter part of the season, especially on the defensive side, so they're going to be a little bit shorthanded, and this is really their last chance to get everything together before those critical games against Florida State and Alabama that will determine whether or not Florida's going to be in that playoff. Yeah, Adam, this is a Florida team that injury-wise has been pretty fortunate this season uh, under Jim McElwain, but some injuries have piled up here near the end of the regular season, especially on the defensive line. John Bullard, who had an arm injury, but we we saw him last week. He played and had a good game, but they lost Alex McAllister due to a foot injury at South Carolina. Joey Ivey didn't play. Jordan Sherritt came in in the second half and instantly made an impact after having the suspension for that targeting call the previous week. He uh, pulled a hamstring, and he's doubtful now for South Carolina. So that's three key guys that are banged up to some degree, so that means Caleb Brantley, Taven Bryan, those guys are going to get a lot more reps. But then we talk about these injuries, Adam, and you look at what the defense did at South Carolina. Gamecocks had only 44 yards going into the fourth quarter. And they did get the ball moving a little bit on a couple of trick plays there in the final quarter. But overall, it was an excellent defensive performance by Florida, kind of what we've come to expect with this group. So for the Florida defense Saturday, Adam, you know, they'll come out. They'll want to obviously uh, keep Florida Atlantic grounded and continue to put up the kind of performances they have been. You know, they've got some weapons. Uh, I think the thing that strikes you when you watch the film is the overall team speed that this team has. Obviously, you would think that based on, you know, a lot of their guys being down from South Florida and uh, obviously the state of Florida. They've done a really good job of assembling really good team speed. While the Gridiron Gators have seen a remarkable return to form under a first-year coach, the rowdy reptiles at the O-Dome have begun their quest to do the same. Gators' own senior writer Chris Harry is deeply embedded with Mike White's upstart squad, and if you're looking for clear takeaways from the Gators' 2-0 start to the season, he says those are tough to discern. When you look at the first two games, they go to Navy, and that was a, an event, Adam, that had you know some built-in distractions because they go up two days early. That's unusual for a road trip. It's the first game of the season. There's a lot of antsiness, a lot of anticipation for how this team's going to play with eight new players. They tour the facility. They go to the Secretary of the Navy's house for dinner. And there's a lot going on, and they, they didn't play great. But they won by 18 points. They got off to a really slow start. They did not shoot the ball well at all, 3 for 19. But they held Navy to 41 points. And when you think about it, that's one field goal away from holding a team in the 30s. That's good defense. And that defense carried over into the win, the home opening win for Mike White against North Carolina A&T. They won by 50 points. These aren't great teams, but what Mike White's looking for is some consistency somewhere. Now, they're probably not as bad as 3 for 19, three-point range you know, against Navy. They're probably not as good as, I believe it was 
16 of 25 from three-point range against North Carolina A&T. They're somewhere in between probably, so where that bears out, we'll find out. But what we do know already is they play really, really hard, and that's a reflection of what they do at practice. This team practices really, really hard, and if you're not playing hard, you're, you're not on the floor at practice, and you're not going to be on the floor at games. That's where the defense is the carryover. His teams at Louisiana Tech were always really, really good when it came to assist-to-turnover ratio. Now, they got problems with some turnovers. They had 23 against Palm Beach Atlantic in the exhibition. They had 19 at Navy, and I got him down to 13. Still probably a little too many for him, but we are decreasing them is, is what he's telling his, his team. So there is some progress there. So two games in, he likes what he's seen so far in terms of effort, but there's plenty to work on. You mentioned being up at Navy and being a part of that whole experience. What did you see that the players took away from being on such hallowed ground. Just between the the mixing in with the with the cadets and you know these are these are future navy and marine officers and they got some hands-on experience with these guys. They toured a ship. They went into the simulation room where they were piloting a ship. It was Devin Robinson was playing, you know, captain on the bridge to to uh, to Kavarius Hayes and Devon Walker. I mean we had heard North Carolina actually wrecked their aircraft carrier that they were piloting. Did not do as well. <laughs> no, they did not do as well. But you saw the noon ritual of for roll call and dismissal into lunch. We all watched that and then we all followed these cadets, 4,400 of them, into the lunchroom, the mess hall, the chow room, whatever you want to call it. But everyone started breaking off. These soldiers were leading players off individually to tables and you got to interact with all these people and hear some phenomenal stories and of what these people have to go through. So Mike White said, these guys the sacrifices they make, these men and women to protect us, you know, he just wants them to play hard. <laughs> play hard at practice, play hard in games. So uh, there was some perspective from that. But at the same time, like I said, they were there two days early, and there was a lot of that coming at them. And, you know, to kind of shake it all off and play a 9.30 p.m. game on a Friday night, I think a little of it, you know, may have caught up to them. But uh, they got out of there, you know, with what they needed, a victory. And we won by 18 points. Through the first couple games, what, if anything, has surprised you about this team and what you've seen? Dorian Finney-Smith didn't play real well in the first game. He had five turnovers in the game, scored four points. Like I said, five turnovers. But he had 12 rebounds. That goes back to playing hard. And then he writes the ship a little bit, 14 points. He, he made back-to-back three-pointers. In that game, this is a, this is a phenomenal statistic. Eight guys for the Gators in the North Carolina A&T game made three-point shots. The highest number ever since the three-point line is nine. One other guy made a three-point shot would have tied a record. Skylar Rimmer is a guy who came here, transferred from Stanford, wasn't supposed to be eligible until uh, January, but the University of Florida appealed it and won that appeal. He's given them some really, really good minutes. He's got good hands. He knows what he isn't. He's always where he's supposed to be. So far, I think he's taken seven shots, and I think he's made six of them. So he's going to give them some really good backup minutes. I'm waiting for John Bunu to be a little more uh, visible. And that's not to say he doesn't play hard, because he sure does. And that's, that's not to say he's invisible, because at 6'11", 255, he's far from invisible. But I want to see him get more into the game. And I think part of what we're seeing, Adam, and it's probably going on all across the country, are these rule changes. The officials are really being a lot stricter. They've really cut back. It's a point of emphasis, the rule changes in terms of hand checkings versus arm bars and what have you. And guys are really hesitant to, to get in foul trouble early because that's going to happen. So maybe seeing a little bit more out of John Igbunu. Last thing I'm surprised about, uh, Devin Robinson has been phenomenal. They've challenged him in the preseason to be more assertive, especially 
actually on the glass, and he's really answered the bell. They're worried about maybe some inconsistency with him because he was really good uh, some days in practice and not so good the next, but there's a reason why the NBA prospects like this guy. He's long, he's 6'9", he blocks shots, he can really run the floor, and his athleticism is starting to show up. At the start of football season, a lot of people looked at the schedule and said it sets up nicely for a new staff as it gets more difficult each week going forward. Same thing is really true for this basketball schedule as well. After this initial two-game stretch, now a tournament that's going to give them a little more of a challenge and test them to see where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. St. Joseph is a team that's okay. They're probably not great, but they do have a player by the name of DeAndre Bembry. He's a, like a 2-3 combo who's an NBA prospect. Now Florida defends him. We'll see. If defensively, they switch a lot, but I imagine uh, Devon Walker will be out there on him. Devin Robinson will probably be on him a little bit. Where it gets interesting, I think, no matter if the Gators win or lose that game Saturday, on Sunday, they're going to play either Purdue or Old Dominion. Purdue just beat North Carolina A&T in their first game by 40. Florida beats North Carolina A&T in their second game by 50. Maybe it's a comparable matchup. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about Purdue. Old Dominion is the other team that could play. Don't sleep on them. They're a very good team. You see a lot of teams picking them to possibly be an NCAA tournament and make a run in their conference. But as we're going ahead in a few weeks, we're going to know a whole lot more about the team. Exactly what you said, because once November turns into December, you're talking about at Miami, at Michigan State, and a game down in Sunrise in the Orange Bowl Classic against Oklahoma State. Those are consecutive games. That'll be a little good measuring stick gauntlet for this program. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to make sure you don't miss a single episode, and please give us a review to help Gator Tales continue to grow. Don't forget to check out the Gators when they take on FAU Saturday at noon, live on the SEC Network and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Also, Florida basketball competes in tournament action at the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut on Saturday and Sunday, and you can see those games online through ESPN3 and watch ESPN. Thanks to Turkey Day, our next podcast will be available next Friday and will preview the Sunshine State Showdown between Florida and Florida State. So have a happy Thanksgiving and don't miss our latest installment. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.